Hi everyone and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles. My name is Adam Beck, your host of the Chronicles. My day job is Executive Director of the Smart Cities Council here in the Australia and New Zealand region. And bringing to you an episode, another quick take episode as part of our uh, first round of series, talking to you about planning and technology, maybe plan tech, I don't know. We're gonna unpack what this all might mean and to join me in helping me to uh, engage in this dialogue around planning and technology in person, uh, Chris Isles from Place Design Group. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me, Adam. Great to be here. Pleasure. Um, let's start by giving our listeners a bit of an overview on who you are and what you do, what your day job is. Um, give, us, give us the bio of yourself and Place Design Group. Sure, yeah. Um, day job, uh, Executive Director of Planning Place Design Group, which means an awful lot of different things, but really I get to um, lead our planning practice nationally. We're a, a planning design consultancy based here in Australia and also offices in China. But um, in terms of my day job, um, you know, leading our team, um, spending a lot of time doing strategic planning, but importantly, um, some thought leadership stuff in this um, future of cities and just thinking about what our cities are doing around us and, and how as us planners need to engage. Okay, well, let's, um, let's dive into that. The planning of cities. Um, I want to start. I want to start high level, but I think it's pretty fundamental. Um, what is planning? What is the idea of planning? And tell me about that word, because in my mind, the idea of planning implies some sense of future, mm-hmm. and in in the future. Um, it, and and I ask myself, you know, is this practice of planning essentially kind of codifying the future? This is what you can do in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, unpack that with me a little bit yeah I, I, I'm gonna answer it two different ways and, and I think where planning is now has become potentially very convoluted um, and is probably not necessarily where planners would ultimately like it to be or see it to be but we might come back to that I mean I, I guess what I see the profession being what planners would say is it's a public interest profession it always has been and if you go all the way back to the start of when planning existed it was you know, before then, um, we were building cities chaotically. People would just build stuff wherever they felt like. I guess they grow on the edge of cities. They just do stuff where they wanted. We had disease. We didn't have roads. We didn't have sanitation. And then all of a sudden, we had a lot of problems. And then I think the you know the planning profession popped up. You know, particularly through Europe and these planners, Romans, and all this kind of stuff, actually figured out we need to actually think about how we design cities, not just let them um, evolve um, in an un- uncontrolled kind of manner. The profession was born. We started to make sense of cities. Um, and, and I think that's where we started from. And I think a lot of us got into it as a creative idea that we were gonna influence the way cities are shaped. Um, in terms of where I think it is now, I think your words there, um, codifying a city, um, it's probably where it is at, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing because I think we, we're just stuck between a very challenging point now of actually thinking about the future of our cities and actually planning ahead of time but controlling the now as well. And I think the two of those aren't necessarily clicking together particularly well, nor have they for a little while now. You know, it's a it's a balancing point. Um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit over the next little bit of this chat of why that is. But um, yeah, I think the profession, um, I wouldn't say it's lost its way, but I think it's got, um, it's become entrenched in some really challenging issues, particularly around the community and how the community is now super and hyper engaged in their own communities and their own, which has probably never been this this degree of you know interest in one's own communities as it is now. I don't think. Someone once said to me, um, a non-planner that was actually um, an executive director for a planning department, 
um, in a US city many, many years ago said to me, um, planning is, uh, is more of a political process and exercise than a, than a technical exercise. Do you, do you, do, do you sort well, of yeah, again, want I say, to share? I, I, I think we are there, but I don't think it used to be that way. I mean, you know, clearly planning, I spent four years at university doing something, so I'd like to hope that there's a degree of technicality to it, as most planners would, you know. But it, it, is, uh, it is very much political and, um, and only in the context of, you know, what I said before, you know, I often say politics is influenced by constituents, constituents are influenced by what's happening around them, which is planning, you know. So planning has become political only because of the people in the middle, which is the residents and the people of the cities we're planning for, you know. If there was a city that had no one living in it, it probably wouldn't be overly political because um, you wouldn't have constituents influencing politics. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, okay. So this smart cities thing, this agenda, it, it's very fast. Um, there's a lot of change, a lot of rapid change. Can you genuinely plan for change? Um, yeah, this is an interesting, I mean, this is something, a topic I'm really interested in. And I released um, some thinking last year, um, called it a little project called Five Years From Now. Um, so really my view is that, you know, we can't accurately predict probably more than five years out where the future's gonna go. Um, and it is challenging and, um, to then plan for longer than five years. You know, not to say, you know, when we've got regional plans for, you know, Sydney and, and Southeast Queensland being done on 20, 25 and 50 year horizons. I mean, we don't know five years from now, so how can you plan for 20 years from now? But again, it's a challenging, do you, you can't just do nothing. You know, mm, well, I, mm. I don't know what's going to change. I can't do anything because that's just, you know, atrophy and you're going to die. So we've got a plan. But I think, you know, I take some insights from the tech sector here and Jeff Bezos, you know, the, the, the uh, Amazon, you know, CEO or, or owner. And his view is that things are changing so fast. You can't plan for things that you don't know. But we should focus on the things that we know aren't going to change or that we don't want to change. And that we should really put our energy into those kind of things. So we know a lot of communities are saying, we really like our green leafy suburbs or we really like the character of our suburbs. Now we don't know what technology change is gonna come in the next five, 10, 20 years. But if those are things that we're saying we don't wanna change, so we can plan around how to make sure that stuff doesn't change. Um, you know, it's the thing about disruption is that again, I, I kind of take a view is that, you know, disruption being a, a provocative word, which implies that someone is changing the norm. I also kind of take a view is that you can be more open to be disrupted um, or you can be a disruptor. And I, and I think if you're proactive and you're less likely to be disrupted um, than if you're kind of passive sitting back going, oh, I, I can't control the future, why even try? So I certainly have a view that things are changing quickly. Planning is smack bang in the middle of that. It's really, really difficult, I think, in the pace of change. Um, but that's something that the profession's got to deal with again, you know, and I don't think that our profession has been one of the fastest adopters of, of change or even responding to change. You know, our profession is pretty slow moving traditionally. We're rooted in some really old, you know, well-regarded theories and, you know, go back to kind of some old, you know, Le Corbusier or kind of concentric rings theories and got all that, our planning models that were built, you know, hundreds of years ago is kind of what our profession is based on, but it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening now going, well, maybe those models don't work anymore. So uh, would, you, would you say that planning, the process of, uh, the profession of mm. planning is being disrupted? 
Oh, 100 percent. You know, the, the, and I think that's 100 percent. It's very confident. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, 100 percent. Our profession's been disrupted, and I, I actually put it down to a range of different things. You know, sure, there's some tech stuff, and we, we cover that. But I think the biggest disruption is actually, which is affecting planning, but it's actually the phenomenon we're experiencing in society at the moment is this. You know, again, the hyper hyper connectivity of the community, what's happening around them. You know, all of the stuff in you know America, Brexit. Um, you know, all of these things where the community is hyper interested, you know, we want the communities are demanding transparency, access to information, they're, they're wanting consistency and certainty of their lives. And that's across all spectrums, you know, they're demanding it from government and clearly planning is a function of government. So I think the biggest disruption, which is 100% changes now, so once upon a time, we were a trusted public interest profession, mm -hmm. where we could just go away and do our stuff now. Um, we've got people questioning everything that's been done and they're getting involved in so many different phases. So as I've said, it's a bad thing, but it is changing the dynamic of planning. You know, we've got more and more applications now in development that triggers uh, public involvement, public notification. Um, and, you know, that's a good thing sometimes and a bad thing other times because it slows things down. So, and I think that's kind of a, a challenge of the, the planning profession. You know, we, as more and more, particularly in Australia, we head to these performance-based planning systems as a, away from more rigid zoning things. And we're moving because, um, again, you know, society and nature of development and form is moving so fast that old-fashioned prescriptive zoning doesn't suit because, you know, I was talking to someone recently, they want to build an electric charging service station for vehicles, you know, yeah. electric, you know electric cars are here. Um, but the definition under the state legislation is it's a sale and retail petroleum-based product is a service station. Um, it doesn't deal with electric charging. And they're... So, so you that, can't put electric charging in a service station? Uh, you, if, well, you couldn't do an only electric one okay. at the moment because you'd be an un, potentially an undefined use and therefore fall outside of the current, current planning. And it's just that, again, that kind of pace of change. But the same is true of advanced manufacturing you know all of the manufacturing stuff is with the industrial classifications now we know we could be having someone probably right next door to you and i now printing a 3d heart valve on a, an electric you know 3d printing machine and technically that would be advanced manufacturing and need to sit in an industrial area yet it sits very comfortably in an office environment um, and probably wants to be so we've got contain this can old containerized yield zoning live here work there build stuff over there and I think that stuff is being disrupted as well because, you know, again, all of these blending and stuff, you know, we've now got healthcare and advanced manufacturing and robotics that used to be really separate. Now, said the guy doing metal work and making, you know, stuff probably wants to sit next door to the heart research guy. So we're, there's all these really cool things happening, but planning needs to keep up with that. Um, and I think the challenge is giving the community certainty of outcomes, which is what they want, but at the same time keeping flexibility that we so that's that's this tension, certainty versus flexibility. Uh, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? And there's probably a number of listeners thinking, why why have we got it sort of an urban planner or a town planner sort of on, on the podcast here? Um, planning in in some way is, you know, it, it they write the rules of what can and can't be done in a city. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm at hundred percent. You know that we're right in the middle of it, you know, and we're probably the ones who normally cop it, cop it in, the, in the press. So everyone complains, oh, it's the planners, the planners, the planners. And, um, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're intricately part of, you know, 
I'm really fascinated about innovation clusters and knowledge, knowledge districts and all of that kind of stuff. You know, the, the DNA of innovation, which is kind of the, that beating heart of the smart city movement and how do we get all of these pieces to drive outcomes. Um, and planning is a key part of that because we can be a real roadblock to it just by old-fashioned zoning and containerized view of yeah live here work there be creative over there and but and but even these new evolving kind of ideas or where you know a lot more planning is now saying oh that's a knowledge cluster or, that's an innovation precinct um, and it's easy to put a star or a dot on a plan and go well, that's kind of where everyone goes to be clever and smart uh, but do we actually understand what the underlying you know conditions for success or dna of innovation and knowledge is because i don't know that do and it's really different and I've spent quite a bit of time researching this stuff and it's you no know, once upon a time uh, a little computer scientist hopped in his car and drove out to the IBM or Dell giant factory out in the middle of a plane of an office park and he parked his car there at 8.45 and walked in the office and got his coffee and then was creative from 9 to 5 and drove home but that's not the way innovation and knowledge works now we've got young kids middle-aged people making apps from 2 a.m to 5 a.m in the morning after they finish playing music at a concert and you know knowledge and creativity is not what it once once was and even that in itself is a fundamental shift you know we're seeing again you know the the innovation used to be big offices big companies you mm. know they have thousands of square meters of people building stuff in one spot but now you know even the most successful companies now started in garages and this culture of and how does our city respond to that because when we're building giant office buildings which are expensive to build expensive to rent and big floor plates that doesn't necessarily suit the dna or innovation which could be a you know a startup with two or three staff who are running on an oily rag and they can't afford to be in the big glass box they just want so are we potentially as we gentrify our cities um, building new stuff but actually removing the building blocks that what made that precinct successful, which was, you know, sometimes just small, you know, pretty ordinary office space that people don't really care about. Mm. Um, so we're sort of seeing more of that as we try to build new stuff. We're actually potentially removing the bits that actually held it all together. I'm going to I'm going to say a word. Mm. I don't want you to react to it. Sure. And the word is plan tech. Mm. Um, so by plan tech, you know, one of the shoes you're saying, you know, blending and planning and technology into what does that mean? Um, so my response to that would be um, slow moving. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I think as I said earlier, you know, where the profession is getting there, you know, we're seeing more plan tech stuff coming out. Particularly at the moment, there's a real interest in, um, again, as I said earlier, getting communities access to information. So a lot of the plan tech focus is remote, digital, um, mobile-based access to information, whether that's maps or development application data or property information. So there's a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, we built an app last year for a local council here in Queensland that allowed the communities to search their properties and find all everything out in the planning kind of system. Is that plan tech? Yeah, I reckon it's a plan tech. You yeah. know, it's a it's a, an app, planning based app. Um, so I think that's the focus at the moment is just really access to easier access to information by the community. Um, and I and I think again that responds to this broad community pressure. We want greater insight and knowledge of what's happening in our suburbs and around us and to us. Um, I don't think that's the only aspect of plan tech. Clearly, you know, we've been building you know live three D models of cities and there's push to explore VR and augmented reality and how we use that in development assessment and plan making, all that kind of stuff. And I think that'll evolve 
Um, but it's a slow old, slow old beast. Um, and I think the biggest hurdle ultimately is going to be budgets. You know, I think a lot of people think that technology is just sitting on shelf and it's easy to do, but it's expensive um, to build and particularly from scratch. And I don't know that a lot of local governments either have the technical skills or desire to fund building stuff from scratch. Um, where, so that's where I think they're ultimately when you're going to need some people to help do this once and, and share this stuff rather than everyone going one out and building their own version, which tends to be my experience with the government model here, particularly here in Australia, you know, do it myself rather than, um, and then I'll never share it rather yeah. than, um, you know, working together to build stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, regardless of whether it's plan tech, prop tech, fintech, you know, I can keep going, con tech. Um, you know, disruption through uh, technology, but also data, right? Data's core to the sort of the, the you know, word tech um, startup mm. community and, and agenda. Um, planning is an interesting one, isn't it? Because I always want, in, in a smart cities, in a smart cities sort of uh, way, you know, data is, data is key, data is king, data is the new oil, however you want to look at it. A core function of the smart city is to collect and communicate and, and crunch data. Um, we want organisations to be data-led, data-driven. Um, planning, which is a profession, you know, centuries, of, centuries long of a profession, um, has tended to be a data-driven profession, right? I mean, I mean, numbers and data play a big role. So um, if data has been at the heart of planning for, for quite some time, what is it around data in particular? Talk to me about mm. data mm. and smart cities and, and, and planning. Is it just that there's more, more, more of it and it's more granular or unpack that for me? Um, well, for me, the, the thing is we have always been a database you know, we've, we've always used, you know, Bureau of Statistics, we've always used, you know, data to tell us where people are moving and that kind of stuff. I think where it's got a shift, where it's shifting is because the pace of change is so rapid now. Things are moving so fast that um, a census done every four or five years is probably not good enough because um, the, the, the lag in the data... Well, it's a year old when it's released yeah, already. So yeah, it's already five or six years old. And, and is that actually showing us what's going on? Um, but it was also predicated on the fact that collecting the data was expensive, analysing the data was expensive, which is why there's one Bureau of Statistics that does it for the whole country. And of course, every state government has their own micro versions of those, but you know, the Bureau of Statistics is a core part of it. Um, so I think where the big shift is coming is that quality of data is not going to be good enough. And it's still great. It's a core building block of planning, but there's a lot of other stuff we can do. And I think a lot of that data actually must sit outside of government. And I think that's the big step change both opportunity and a massive challenge for government. So we know that Uber knows more about our roads and congestion than any other department of transport in the whole country bar none. You know, they're collecting live data from all of their vehicles, whether they're on a fare or not, if you've got the Uber app on, it's tracking congestion, that kind of stuff. Um, we know that people like all the banks know more about the commercial viability and success of our retail precincts than anyone else, because they can see how much money we spend through terminal data. And, we know that uh, social media groups, uh, restaurant review things like Zumato or Yelp and these kind of things know more about the conditions and, and the social aspects of our communities. Um, and Strava knows more about cycle movements than any other person in the country. So we've got four amazing sets of data uh, that are all outside of government. 
Um, now you can access some of those at a cost. Um, some of them you could probably get if you were more sophisticated and demanded of people like Uber in exchange for the rights to run their business on our public streets. Um, but government, I don't think, generally speaking, is geared to, to handle that. One, to buy data, because it's probably not a, a, a funding stream that they've ever had the budget for before. Uh, but two, the idea of non-government having more data than government, I think, scares them to a degree, or maybe it's just boring. So I think that's to me is the big step change, is just learning how to hybridize old data, ABS type things, and new data. And recognizing that it may not be on my server, um, it may be on someone else's server, it may be their data. Um, and but the beauty of it is that it's theoretically live, you know. One day old, one week old. I know you can get one day old banking data, you can get stuff removed, which is probably live. And and I think that's the exciting bit is working in effectively real time. Okay, I want to uh, I want to sort of take this down a level to sort of you know you, you more personally um, with with respect to smart cities. What are you most? Uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity for sort of you know both the good and the bad and the ugly. But let, let, let's start with sort of what you're most concerned about with respect to tech and data, the smart cities agenda, um, and that that sort of authenticity of of, of planning and you know, representing the community and their interests. What, uh, what concerns you? Um, look, my approach to smart season, you know, I've been tinkering around for a few years. I spent a couple of years trying to figure out what the hell it was. Um, but more importantly, that was me as a planner. I was clear everyone was playing around and what did it mean for me? Um, and how could I bring that to my planning? Which I think I've figured out now. And to me, that's about place, you know, starting with the place first and starting with the problems we're solving. So I think my concerns would be is that we're doing a lot of stuff without necessarily knowing what problems we're solving or what opportunities we're creating first. We've got amazing technology out there, amazing providers out there, and we can drop, you know, anything from smart meters, smart bins, smart lights, um, all this stuff out there. But, you know, is that actually solving your problem? Um, and is that the best way to spend our limited amount of resources? In local government land is that solving the right problems through through technology um so i'm con yeah concerned is a, is a big word but mm. um you know I, I would like to see the focus uh, shift or then really come back down to starting at the problem going hey what do, what do we want the future of our place our city our precinct to be um, what do i need problems do i need to solve or what's the character we want and therefore what technological solutions need to, to help me get there um, and as opposed to the other way going you know I got a whole of the money or I'm going to the federal government for smart cities funding round three what tech can I drop in there just because someone's going to give me a pot of money if I get it right and I, and I, want, to, I, I want to make sure it comes out the way just on um, planning and smart cities and concern for a moment um, I'm, I'm sort of going a little bit off, off path here but I think still relevant um, Let's play wordplay word play game again. When I, I'm going I'm to say a word and I want to get your reaction. What is your reaction when I, when I say the words Waterfront Toronto? Um, watch this space. Um, <laughs> no, 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 you can't, oh, get, away, no, you can't I, get away with that. Um, yeah, um, what's my word response to that? Um, I think it's interesting. A, a lot of people are concerned about it, right? I think a lot of people are concerned about it. Um, and I, I, I'm, again, it's one of those interesting things about smart cities. You know, 
a, a lot of the, our built environment profession and going, oh, you know, smart city, it's all about technology, you've forgotten about the trees and the place and all of the people stuff. And I kind of, and my response to that is, well, can you point me to an example where that's actually happened? You know, where has the smart city agenda actually left people behind? And they can never can, because they're kind of reading the hype in the papers and reading in the press, there's a lot of people. I, I think the Toronto stuff's the same. It's like, we're judging them and they haven't actually done anything wrong yet. And I know that we're expressing concerns of what could happen, but I think until something does, it's a bit unfair, you know? Well, well there has been criticism around process, which has sure. happened. Sure. Yeah, but, but the concerns around privacy values yeah, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I've got, I, I'm not too afraid of it. I, I think it's kind of be an interesting part of the, the future um, of where we kind of get to. You know, cities have said, oh, it's gonna be harder to dissect what is a civic function versus a technology company versus a building company versus, um, you know, they're, they're getting much, much closer. Um, particularly now that I think a lot of government functions that used to be done in-house need to be outsourced because they can be done cheaper. They're, they're more um, adaptable. We're moving quicker in private sector than government, so we should outsource them. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm interested in it, like most people. It is a watch yeah, system. I mean, as a planner, you must be keeping a watching brief on it. Yeah. The, Correct, you know, the, but the bits that I like, you know, what what I if I was a planner working on a Toronto waterfront project, the bit that I would be really interested in is learning from the data to make sure that we evolve precinct because it's if you're going to collect data, we can collect data where people move, where cars move, how many, what time of day, are they moving where we expected them to? Have I got our public realm right? Have we got the zoning and that kind of stuff right? If we have got a large precinct that's in many many stages, we should be collecting that stuff. And then by the time we get to the end of the project, that project should be so dialed in because we've learned all the way through. So mm. to me, the bit as a planner I'm excited about is closing the loop, collecting data to then go back and review the decisions we made, the strategic planning, and then adapt our things. I'm not so interested in it as a navel-gazing exercise just because I can collect stuff that's collected, unless you're actually using it to change um, something that you're doing in your planning process. You know, in the, using an Australian context, I know there's a pretty significant project in Western Sydney. The local council is saying to them, hey, you need to provide X amount of cars per residential unit. The developer and we would say, we don't think we need that many cars because we've got new public transport investment coming and we don't think the car dominates the size of what it is in the future. The council said, well, we're gonna do it anyway. That's our standard. So my response to those people is, if you've got a limited amount of money spent on your smart city agenda, sure, you could put some stuff in the public realm and you could do some EV charging, we do a whole heap of stuff, but why don't we just put some camera analytics in your car parking basements? And then in a year's time, we can go back to the local government with an irrefutable set of data that says, hey, you know, we're actually showing that our basements are only 60 to 70% full. Can I please have a dispensation? Um, the net return to the environment, the net return to that project and to the resident community will be far better mm. than one or two EV charging points or a couple of smart lights throughout that entire precinct, in my humble opinion. So to me, that's that using smart city to solve a problem. It's not always going to be, it could be a process problem. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where, how I really like to see us think about how we use the smart city stuff. You, you've touched on mobility a few times now, you know, yeah. cars and parking and, and apps and Uber. You know, mobility is one of those things that touches every single person every day of their life. Mm. Um, it's, it's undergoing some pretty substantial change and disruption. Um, you know, we're here in Brisbane and just before Christmas, 
little league scooters, you know, rain down from the clouds, they're all over the place. It's engaging the community. Just on, on mobility mm-hmm. for a moment, uh, and of course mobility you can't necessarily then detach from physical place and space either. Tell me a little bit about how how you're viewing those changes at the moment. Yeah, so mobility in particular, the future of streets is something that I spent a lot of time in 2018 looking at. Uh, we produced the Future of Streets provocation, uh, which really explored a whole heap of these disruptions in the future of streets. And I think mobility um, can't be, um, as you say, disconnected from place. Um, so it's going to be a something that changes in the, you know, I think it'd be interesting to see how quickly we start getting into autonomous vehicles. And there's a lot of hype on that. I'm less on that hype curve. I'm kind of saying it's going to come, but it'll be where it is. But the, the, the new mobility is the stuff. And, and in particular, whether it's the scooters or I'm really interested at the moment is almost our convenience delivery fascination. You know, Uber Eats, you know, um, all of the other kind of different companies that there are and how that works in a functional day-to-day kind of perspective. So I'm really interested in, Sure, there's the mobility function that happens on a road or on a footpath and how that's going to work, but I'm really interested in almost the kind of origin and destination of these kind of functions and, and how we are we adapting our public realm, our footpaths, and then our buildings to actually handle this stuff and handle it well. So to use an example, there's a burger store around the corner from my office, pretty popular apparently. On any given day, particularly a Friday or a weekend, you know, there will be five or six motorbikes all parked illegally with people running in picking up their orders. Now, that's at the origin end of it. Um, so there's a problem there because our, you know, it's clogging the streets or it's clogging footpaths and parking illegally. So our regulatory environment and planning system hasn't handled that this is going to be a, a, a way that businesses operate. Then at the destination end, they then take all those burgers into the city and drop them in front of an office building in peak hour that's got, you know, 20, a 60-storey office building full of a few thousand workers all wanting a burger on a Friday. Um, you know, how do we then deal with the origin end of motorbikes or cars circling endlessly or parking illegally until someone comes down and picks up their food? So I think we'll get quickly to the point that planning and architecture has to evolve our public realm to handle origin and destination end. And the same goes with scooters, you know, we can... We can drop them anywhere we want. That's the whole point of dockless, but we're seeing what I call dockless version two. You know, obviously the bikes were our first attempt at it globally. It's pretty much, I think everyone would say, a global failure um, on every continent in terms of how we handle the, the dockless nature of them. Um, dockless version two, Santa Monica, um, San Diego, Portland, they're all trialing these sort of painted corrals or painted demarked areas on footpaths and curbs in front of buildings. It sort of says, hey, I know you can park them anywhere, but if you just drop them here, we'd be really happy. Um, and I think our human psychology is that I can leave it, um, you know, 10 metres over there in front of a tree, but I'll put it over here because that's kind of where people want me to. And 60, 70% of people probably are. So I think the early results from San Diego, Portland, is that it's working much, much better, which is pretty cool. Um, so, but again, I translate that to Brisbane, you know, I don't think we'll be too far before architects, urban designers, planners, engineers need to start thinking about how we quarantine space in our footpaths to, to stack all of this kind of stuff because you start interrupting core functions of public realm and that's when you've got a mobility problem. The lady in the wheelchair can't get through, the old lady in a walking frame or the lady with a pram or just, you know, groups of people when we start getting tech clutter in footpaths, I think we've got a big problem. So, so, absolutely, we're seeing this real 
rapid convergence of you know with digital there's a physical sort of yeah you, you push and it and it, you know it pops out another end yeah i know you're not a landscape architect no. chris but you, you muck around in, in yeah. landscapes yeah, um the this is equally applicable sort of to our more natural spaces as well so physical digital natural worlds yeah. coming together mm. um no doubt you're seeing some interesting sort of things in that space yeah you know again our, our street provocation which focused on you know this idea of if we if we threw out all of the street handbooks today predominantly written by engineers um you know no offense to those engineers listening on the on to this but you know we've always put infrastructure and services first and then if we had any room left we might allow the landscape architects to come in and stick a tree um, and I think all of us would know that that's not working. You know, we had 45 degree days in Western Sydney last week. Yesterday I was in Sydney, it was 43. Yeah. So, you know, that's going to be more common, you know, for, uh, for all of us um, in the climate change kind of um, acceptance quarter. Um, and, you know, we, we need to plant more trees. We know urban heat island effect, but we also know the cooling benefit, you know, four degrees with trees, you know, four degrees hotter without trees. So we need to plant more trees, you know, retrofit, and we certainly should be making sure new streets we're building have got more of that stuff. There's almost no excuse in my view to be building brand new streets that are treeless um, mm. or effectively treeless. And we kind of are because the engineering and the infrastructure comes first. So there is a real problem there um, that landscape architects need to engage with of how we put the, the green health of our cities first. You know, there's a whole good biophilic benefit to human health stuff that comes with it as well. But we also know there's a whole heap of challenges coming. So emerging 5G technology, you know, the next generation of phones stuff is a, it's a narrow beam um, wave signal, which um, is affected by trees and solid obstacles and differently to the way 4G and 3G were. So you could say trees and 5G are enemies. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, we certainly, that's going to be an interesting space that plays out. And then, you know, we're starting to head towards, you know, autonomous freight. You know, there's some trials going on in Australia with Australia Post with little, um, you know, robots that roll out the back of trucks and deliver parcels to our houses, you know, potentially drones as well. And we know from chatting to some agencies who are doing uh, regulatory reviews of how to facilitate um, autonomous freight delivery that they're saying, oh, our footpaths and verges are too narrow. There's all these trees and garden beds that get in the way of all these robots. You know, we've got a problem. We might have to start thinking about whether we can get rid of it. Can we keep all of these things? And so it's again, it's, you know, we've got the things in the wrong priority. You know, we can't. All this tech stuff should enable us to have a better society and better environment. It's not going to be the better environment. So it, it has to come secondary. We need to figure out ways it, it, it works around our trees and natural environment because that's particularly in Australia. Um, you know, that's what we value green leafy suburbs um, and we the last thing we want to do is actually be prejudicing that through technology how, how how does the average planner keep up with this change and the intersection points with the work that they do because um and, and i speak from you know i'm mm. a planner by trade but yeah. um you know i i spend you know at least two to three days a week in sort of workshops or sessions or conferences around smart cities and technology and there isn't a planner in the room yeah. um how how do we make this smart how do we set the smart cities table with with a with a place for everyone how, how do we do that better 
Well, look, I think what I would say to the planners listening to this, um, or any profession for that matter, is I, I think we, with clearly important roles for our institutes, planning institute, engineering institute, et cetera, et cetera, to, to continue to perform and provide uh, professional um, training and, and continue professional development. So I think those organisations need to remain contemporary, and, and I think they are. But, you know, we've delivered smart city training programs, you, you and I both, to the Planning Institute and a range of different states across Australia. So I think those organisations will continue to evolve, but I would encourage, and what I've found the best thing is actually stop hanging out with your own kind of people. I know it's comfortable and mm -hmm. easy, Plans, mm -hmm. hang out with planners, engineers, with engineers, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that what we really need to do is find ways um, to stop hanging out with our own kind. Um, I read an article, uh, and I couldn't tell you the author off the top of my head, but it was in the New York Times last year. And, and, and his analogy was um, that life is dodgeball and we need to get in there and get hit by a few balls <laughs> um, and, un and unexpected. We need to get some balls whizzed past our face. So. Now, what he was really saying is that, you know, you, you need to take yourself to a, a prop tech conference. You need to take yourself to a, a big data event. You need to take yourself to some, you know, smart city or some engineering. You need to start emerging with different professions. And I, and I think that's one, because you'll get new knowledge, but two, also that it's really easy to read this stuff on the net. You know, I, I like you, I'm a voracious reader. I'll, I'll spend my nights quite sadly looking at Twitter and Instagram and a whole heap of different tech feeds to keep myself um, aware of what's coming but um, that's a view of the world but I think the better view now is actually the, the casual conversations over coffee or, or the bits that I love is you know the, the couch conversations facilitated chats on stage that aren't uh, are real they're unstructured they're just off the cuff commentary and I learned so much just by hearing people talk about what they're doing so I just encourage readers to get out of your comfort zone yeah um, so Last question, Chris. Um, what what does your twenty nineteen look like? Uh, busy, I suspect. But um, you know, look in the smart city space, we're continuing to evolve our do strategy work. You know, I think the twenty nineteen, I think, will be the year of smart city strategies for local government in Australia. We've had a an awakening, and, and it's an emerging space. Um, you know, so we're doing continue to deliver that stuff, and I'm in, I'm really excited by our approach we've come up with that, just sort of focusing on place-based stuff. But the future of streets I've spoken about, we're continuing that. You know, we're looking to to release a new future handbook, a new guidebook, which has almost kind of challenged a lot of that engineering standards and the priorities for, for tech and, and space in our streets and how we handle that. Um, so that's certainly going to be a deliverable for us in this space in 2019. Um, you know, we released the Smart City Explorer, which is sort of a partner online tool to the Code of Smart Communities that, that, that your organisation delivered this year. So we've got some plans to continue to evolve the Smart City Explorer to provide a sort of a one-stop shop for people to understand tech and smart cities and what's available and how it manifests in our cities. Um, but beyond that, um, I'm just sort of really fascinated to kind of see where, where planning gets, you know, yeah, keep pushing some thinking, you know, we've got some big challenges, I think, around growth, you know, population change in our cities, how mobility shifts. So um, maybe if our um, economy and housing market is taking a slight break, um, as the media would suggest, it might be a, a year or two for planning to kind of catch up. So this might be our opportunity to, um, to not be so you know, response driven to just rapid growth and maybe this is our chance to catch our breath the next couple of years and, and really jump into this plan tech space. 
Well, it's been a fascinating conversation, um, planning and technology and disrupt, disruption and, you know, a little bit of an insight into sort of some, or a backdrop to this idea of plan tech. Um, Chris, thanks, uh, thanks so much for joining us today on this episode. Very happy to be here. And for our listeners, if you're not subscribing to the Smart Cities Chronicles, you can do so. Uh, we're on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud and Spotify. Um, you can also head to our website, smartcitieschronicles.com. Uh, we also love feedback, uh, good, bad, and in between. Uh, you can email us anytime, uh, chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. Uh, today, talking about plan tech, I've had with me Chris Isles, Director at Place Design Group. Uh, we look forward to bringing you some new episodes and some fresh thinking in the not too distant future, but for now, keep well.